All right, we are live, ladies and gentlemen. It seems like every day we get a new story that blows a hole in the climate narrative. A new study showing the impracticality of switching to 100% renewable energy or an electric vehicle battery plant that requires coal power to function. We are told constantly by the media, politicians, and now even the Pope that we must change our lifestyle in an effort to combat climate change. Yet, most people seemingly don't care. These uh, facts have recently left me wondering, what is it going to take to finally destroy the climate narrative? We're going to be talking about this and more on episode 418 of the In the Tank podcast. Welcome to the In the Tank podcast. As always, I'm your host, Donald Kendall. Joining me today, I've got Jim Lakely, VP of the Heartland Institute. How are you doing today? Good, sir. I'm doing just great. Um, actually, I'm actually recovering. Did anyone else almost have a heart attack yesterday when uh, that alert system went off on everybody's phones? You know, <laughs> I'm actually wondering how many people uh, heard that loud buzzer and then drove their car off into an embutment or something like that. So, uh, I'm, I'm starting to calm down from it, but uh, I am actually very excited that now that I know for sure that the government has access to every single cell phone in America, that makes me yeah. feel very, very calm. Yeah, I thought it was going to be one of those signals that went out and turned everyone into a zombie like that Stephen King book, Cell, but uh didn't happen. I had my phone in the microwave for no reason. Also joining us, Chris Talgo. He is the editorial director here at the Heartland Institute. How are you doing today, good sir? Well, Donnie, as you know, I'm coming off of three days with uh, no internet, so I've been off the grid for a couple of days. And you know what? I kind of liked it. Very <laughs> yeah. quiet. I read. I, I read. A, I read actually like half a book. Like really, really good stuff. I think I could do without the internet. <laughs> right, right. He's in a, a much better mood than usual. We'll see if that lasts. When we, start I'm just much. I'm, I'm, I'm much less stressed. You know, it's just all that like hustle and bustle of the internet. Like I don't need that in my life. Right, right, right. Also joining us, we have Linnea Lucan, Research Fellow for Heartland's Arthur B. Robinson's Center on Climate and Environmental Policy. Linnea, how are you? Can't say it in one breath. It just can't be done. Um, <laughs> the uh, I, I frankly am totally out of the loop on, on why anyone is alarmed or freaked out by the uh, phone alarm system. I thought We've been getting these kinds of things for years, so I'm I'm actually quite out of the loop on why this one's a big deal. So I really don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure either. I remember one of the first ones, like several years ago or something like that, and the conspiracy theories that swirled around it. And I felt like yeah. I was hearing the same ones this time around. I'm just like, what? This happened. This has been happening for a while now, guys. Like, stop, stop freaking out. Well, and I, my whoever it is in my local area that has the like power to send those kinds of alerts out are abusing it big time <laughs> because I'm woken up in the middle of the night by some Amber alert or some other thing uh, mm. on a, at least weekly basis. So oh, man. Uh, I've been, I'm like, um, Oh, I can't recall what the name of the experiment is now, but where they, they keep ringing a loud sound until people stop reacting to the loud sound. <laughs> All right. Uh, that's me with that alert. I had the power over that for just like a yeah. week. 
be fantastic. Well, now if there are zombies, I'm just going to ignore it because they use it so much. So, so you're Manny, going. Go well, ahead. Just, real quick, speaking of uh, government wanting your cell phone number, uh, yesterday I had to renew my Illinois license plate and I had to do it online. And in order to do that, they required my phone number, which I just found to be very strange. Why do they need my phone number for me to renew my uh, my license plate? And by the way, guess how much it costs? One hundred and fifty one dollars. Oh, yes, I know. Yeah, it's uh, that that that's like the one thing. The fees for that, especially here in Illinois, are going up faster than inflation. I think it's the only thing. But uh, so before we get going, we do have a my credit card, of course. We have a lot to talk about. Uh, those audio-only listeners that are probably catching the show on a Friday or later, you can catch us a day earlier where we are live streaming this on Facebook and YouTube and Rumble and Twitter, and you can join the conversation. You can throw your comments and questions in the chat. Maybe we'll address your questions on the fly. Maybe we'll show your comment on the screen. You could also support the show by uh, using that Super Chat functionality. We have that enabled, so you can guarantee that your comment or question is addressed on uh, on the show live if you use that, or you could help out the show by not spending a penny, but spending a couple of seconds hitting that like button, sharing this content, subscribing if you haven't already, or just leaving a comment under the video. All those things help break through the big tech algorithms that prevent content like this from being shown to more others. And as a special note uh, from Jim Lakely, uh, you know, we, we've, we were talking about the show the other day when we were making lunch in the, uh, in the break room. And we were talking about all of our constant listeners. I see many of them in the chat already. We got uh, Doug. We got Christine. We got Cowboy Roy Rogers. Uh, Gary in there i see female casey royals fan you know i love your guys' support bring some of your friends on next time you know i really want to develop this this little community that we have all the time in the in the side chat over here uh so you know invite your friends uh i know that uh, there's a couple of those that know each other outside of the comment section but uh it's always good to have more people in there develop a little bit of a community right jim hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, if you're a fan of this show and again, I, we love our regulars. We love seeing you guys in the chat every week, you know, help us spread the word. I mean, we don't really have a budget to, <laughs> to grow this audience and there's really only one real way to grow, to grow an audience and that's organically. So if you enjoy this show and you have like-minded friends who you also think would enjoy the show, especially being there live where we can interact with each other, um, you know, Send them an email, shoot them a text, say, hey, you know, the show's on. You should come in and watch this. It's a lot of fun and very informative. And that's what we aim to do. I mean, we are a think tank and it's uh, we want to we want to have fun on this show. But you're, you're also going to get a lot of really great information about public policy that you pretty much don't get anywhere else. So um, please, please bring some friends along next time. That is true. Yes, we are going to be getting into a lot of stuff as it uh, pertains to climate change and the proposed solutions to climate change. But before we do, uh, there is a little bit of newsworthy stuff going on. And that is the fact that Republicans are making history, folks. Let's hear that uh, round of applause. Yes, that's right. Republicans are making history for the first time in United States history. I know. Yes, history is being made. The Speaker of the House has been removed. So it's never happened before. <laughs> Republicans, great job. Fantastic. First time ever. After being in position for about nine months, Speaker uh, uh, Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, was removed from that position. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> 
resolution to remove McCarthy was initiated by Republican Representative Matt Gates and passed with the support of an entire eight Republicans and all of the Democrats. Uh, Chris, what the hell is going on here? Well, I guess what's going on here is that uh, the hardliners, uh, Matt Gates is one of them, you know, the the Freedom Caucus members were uh, really upset with how uh, Kevin McCarthy uh, negotiated the debt ceiling deal a couple months ago and his negotiations on the continuing resolution, the budget deal uh, last week. You know, when uh, Kevin McCarthy was, uh, you know, running for speaker, he said he was going to once and for all cut spending. And he refused to do so. And it was just, you know, the same old, same old. And I've been watching this stuff, you know, pretty intensely for 20 something years. And I, I, it's just, it's mind boggling how many times we've had uh, Republican speakers or presidential candidates or whomever come in and say, we are finally going to, you know, cut spending and we're going to really make, you know, like hard cuts. We're going to actually uh, look at the entitlement uh, programs and, uh, you know, put them on the path to solvency. And every single time when the rubber meets the road, they just don't do anything. So, I mean, I'm, I, I can see both sides of this because I know that Mark Levin and a bunch of other you know, people who I highly respect and who know a lot more about this stuff than I do said this was a very bad idea. But then there's also that side of me that says, no, I think that this is good because once and you know, finally we have, you know, a, a group of uh, Republican congressmen who are saying enough is enough and we are not going to allow you to come in, make these like hollow promises and then just, you know, do uh, what is always done, where he you know, used uh, Democratic votes to push forth a continuing resolution that didn't cut spending at all. So, I mean, I can see both sides of this. I think that in terms of um, so in terms of like political ramifications, you know, for 2024 and beyond, I think that this is playing into the Democrats hands to some degree because, uh, you know, the media is drooling over this saying, oh, the Republicans can't govern. They are, you know, like they can't do anything. That's true, but it's really, uh, you know, <laughs> it's true in a way, but it's because they are finally, you know, a, a few of them, a very select few, eight of them, you know, are saying enough is enough. And we want someone to come in here and actually do what needs to be done. So, uh, you know. Jim, I, I, I'm not entirely sure what to expect uh, tossing this story to you. I'm not sure if you're going to applaud it like a number of the people in our uh, chat over here or if you're going to say this is. Not good, practically speaking. So what do you have to say about this story? Well, I mean, I think first off, I, I don't think most most Americans care about about sure. all this stuff. You know, I, I shared in Slack as we were discussing it as an organization in our Slack uh, communication, the instant message thing the other day. And it's like, uh, you know, uh, wake me up when uh, this actually has any effect on the way government is run. Uh one of the, pro- I think one of the, McCarthy was dumped for several reasons. I mean, the number one reason is that all the Democrats voted, eight Republicans and the entire Democratic caucus in the House voted to to depose the speaker. Um, the Democrats did it because they wanted to embarrass and distract and divide, make sure the, uh, the Republicans are divided, divide and conquer kind of stuff. Um, as old as time. But the reason those eight um, MAGA Republicans, extreme MAGA Republicans probably, uh, did what they did. I think if if they didn't just do it out of spite, one of the reasons they did it is that McCarthy did not keep his promises to them. It was a contentious uh, fight to get him to be speaker in the first place. And one of the things he promised to do was to try to rein in spending by doing what actually had not been done. I actually had to look this up uh, the other day. There's something called regular order. You have 12 appropriations bills. 
and um, in each, in they're all categorized, and you pass those appropriations bills through the appropriations committee and all the uh, subcommittees, and then you vote on those each individually on the house, and so that's at least a if you do that, there's a chance that you can actually control spending in this country. Congress has not done that for all 12 appropriation bills since 1997. That's uh, 26 years, I believe. So uh, McCarthy, the big thing he said to get the support of everybody, and especially those evil MAGA Republicans, was to say, yeah, we're going to go back to regular order. He made a big deal about this. He talked about it all the time. Uh, I didn't find any clips, but I'm sure I could have uh, this morning of him saying we're going back to regular order. We're going to we're going to run the House of Representatives the way it's supposed to be run, the way the Constitution says the, the, the House is supposed to run. And instead, we got one continuing resolution after another, which is or, or omnibus spending bills, which was what was the uh, uh, the way it was run when I was covering Congress back in the early uh, or the mid 2000s. And it's just this idea you put all the spending into one bill and then everybody has to vote on it. So you can't, you know, oppose. And if you oppose something strongly in a big omnibus, omnibus spending bill or a continuing resolution, um, you can't, you know, you have a choice. You can either vote against uh, funding the entire federal government uh, or you cannot. And so it's 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 trickery. It's it's shady. It's bad. Uh, and so, you know, McCarthy said he was going to do that. Uh, he was going to run these things through the Appropriations Committee. Didn't happen. Um, so McCarthy actually could have, if he really wanted to make that a priority, he could have worked really hard and rode, <laughs> rode herd over those appropriations bills to make sure they, they got done in regular order. He obviously didn't care about that. Um, and then you add into that, this, the new, the, the next continuing resolution had, I believe, no oversight on, on our spending in Ukraine, which, um, you know, you can support, you know, you can support the defense of Ukraine and actually want some accountability for where all of the American tax people or taxpayers money and all and basically half the Pentagon budget is going these days. How about a little accountability? How about a how about a victory plan? How about anything? You know, is it just going to be an endless um, supply of munitions and money forever with with no strings attached and no no accountability, no nothing? Uh, so, you know, some Republicans were like, hey, let's at least talk about it. You're not treasonous or a Putin puppet just for asking, where is all this money going and how effective is it being? So um, he refused to do that as well. So off he goes. And again, like I said, the Democrats only only uh, he, he wouldn't have been able to do it without the Democrats or this wouldn't have been able to happen without the Democrats. So it only took eight Republicans and the entire Democratic caucus to throw out the Republican Speaker of the House. Uh, yeah, that's unprecedented. And but, you know. Bottom line, you know, most people don't care. You, I would I would imagine three percent of the United States population could even name who the Speaker of the House was before Kevin McCarthy was uh, was deposed, and maybe ten percent even knows that there is a Speaker of the House of Representatives. So, you know, what is it? Was yeah, really nothing right now. But maybe something will change after this because because you know, if there was one thing that uh, Washington doesn't like, it's the, these kinds of coups, these kinds of political coups. Uh, to shake things up. So, who, you know, who knows? Yeah, well, if he stayed a speaker, maybe something will change now that he's out. Linnea, do you have anything to add? And, and, and you know, if you don't, that's fine, because I don't. Uh, to me, the, the last, like, uh, reality TV show I watched was Jersey Shore. So this doesn't Great hold a show, candle to that. <laughs> this doesn't hold a candle to that. So it's still yeah. on, by the way. It's still on. Going strong. I'll, I'll Sammy's say. back. Sammy's back. <laughs> Let's just say um, I... I am in support of rhino hunting. Um, I can't say that I'll shed a tear <laughs> over McCarthy being ousted. I don't think it's the end of the world if we have a government shutdown. I really couldn't care less. Um, 
the spending stuff, I, I don't see it being fixed anytime soon. I read on Twitter um, when this was going on, uh, Jesse Kelly, who is uh, quite an engaging personality, but he made a good point, which is that Republicans want things to change or they say that they want things to change, but they don't want to exert any sweat getting it done. They don't want any ugliness in getting it done. They want it to magically change while continuing to try the same things over and over again. Um, and I and I think that there is no possible way that we're going to be able to have any kind of major reforms in how um, our government spends money or in how our um, our representatives have a, a stunning lack of representation for their constituents. Um, I don't think any of that's going to change without some real ugliness. And so I'm not overly, uh, I, you know, I'm not going to get out my fainting couch when something like this happens. Right. Um, regardless of what the ulterior motives might be, I've seen a lot of people trying to pin ul ulterior motives on Matt Gates. I really don't care. <laughs> I, it's, it's not something that I'm worried about. Yeah. Just, can I just add one more thing to this? Finish it off. More than half of the uh, federal budget uh, goes to the big three entitlement programs, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. And Republicans and Democrats alike say that they will just not touch that issue. It's the third rail politics. It's been that way for so many years. But unless someone, you know, finally does address that, then we're just, you know, nibbling at the edges here. Mm -hmm. And for, for people like me and Linnea, you know, and you, Donnie, uh, sorry, Jim. <laughs> uh, you know, we've been paying the Social Security for for decades here, and you know, we're not going to get those benefits, and that is going to have a gigantic uh, effect on you know people's retirements. And you know, unless and until they they really actually tackle these programs, we're not going to really make any progress here. Oh, well, you know what, Jim? I'm gonna I'm gonna lump you into that group too. I don't think you're gonna get any. So <laughs> I've, known that, I've known that since I was in my 20s. So don't no worries. I'm yeah, prepared. no, it's just like all, all of this stuff. It's also know, interesting it, that people are taking Social Security at the uh, earliest possible age because they are becoming less and less um, confident that it's going to be there. You know, if they live to be 80 something years old or so. These things just seem to be like this kind of unstoppable freight train of just terribleness that like no matter what uh, you do, like it's, it's so hard to slow it down. The momentum is so great. Um, and that uh, is my attempt at a segue into our main topic, which is the climate change narrative. How do you like that one, Jim? That wasn't too bad. <laughs> Over the past week or so, um, I've seen a whole bunch of different stories, uh, different articles that seem to just shred entire aspects of the climate change narrative. So we're going to be talking about a bunch of these different stories. One about the impracticality of completely transforming the electric grid. Another showing green energy re uh, receives far more subsidies than fossil fuels. Several stories that highlight the absurdity of transforming all vehicles in the country to electric vehicles. And I just wonder, how can somebody look at all of these stories and still have faith in certain aspects of the climate narrative. So that is what I want to discuss in length on today's show. But I want to be crystal clear about a few things before we get going to make sure that we aren't accused of, of making straw man arguments or anything like that. So first thing, for the sake of limiting this conversation to a manageable degree, I want to avoid talking about the threat of climate change altogether. I don't feel like I can adequately add to that conversation about CO2 sensitivities of the atmosphere or ocean absorption rates or feedback loops or anything like that. So I'll let the experts and 
scientists at ICCC worry about those debates, or maybe you guys over at the Climate Change Roundtable, which is at noon on Fridays on this uh, on Heartland Institute channel featuring Linnea, that you guys could have that conversation. I want to stick to the subscribe solutions to the supposed problem. So any objection to that before we get going in this conversation? Lene, I'm sure that you would have plenty to say if we uh, if we wanted to talk about that facet of the conversation. I'll just uh, take the whole show. <laughs> right, right. So let's just put that aside. I, on this show, always like to focus on what the solutions mm-hmm. to these proposed problems are. To me, I find those in a lot like more... I feel like I could add to that conversation just as like a lay person. And uh, I also feel like they're so much weaker. So, uh, yeah, well, wait, I'm going to so, go. Wait, gonna go so, after so, those so you're things. saying I'm not allowed to say that carbon dioxide emissions by humans is not a problem. So th- these solutions aren't even necessary on that on that front. Are we just going to. OK, I won't say that because if, if I said yeah, that, Johnny, that would be bad. So Johnny, I'm not going to say one, that one, carbon one, dioxide just, is not a big deal. One one quick uh issue with with how you frame that because mm-hmm. i i reject that premise on its face so it's like i just want to put that out there <laughs> yeah no no that's fine I, I just like like i said we we could have a seven hour show and talk about every aspect of climate change but i want to just focus in on okay. something that we could actually tackle in about 45 minutes that's my objective so like I said, let the climate change roundtable people worry about that. Let the ICCC experts worry about that with their 400 uh, slides PowerPoint or anything like that. So so what uh, what are the subscribed prescribed solutions to the problems? And, and again, I don't want to uh, focus on any single fringe element of the climate alarmist movement. I know that there are some crazies out there that are, that are saying that we need to do all types of nutso things, but I want to talk about like the mainstream narrative about climate change. And and I seriously want to avoid straw men at all. So Linnea, Jim, Chris, jump in and and correct me if I'm wrong. in, in my assessment of what I'm considering kind of the mainstream narrative. So here's kind of the points that I want to lay out. Uh, one climate change poses an existential uh, existential threat, right? I think that's pretty much uh, uniformly, you know, talked about from everyone on that side. Time is quickly running out to deal with that threat. In fact, we are constantly approaching or stumbling over tipping points in regard to climate change. And in order to stop climate change, we have to one transition to 100% renewable energy as soon as possible. And there are certain dates that are thrown out there, 2035, 2040, maybe even some of them saying 2030. And by this, I mean essentially only wind and solar and battery backup. Uh, Most of these people reject hydropower, definitely no nuclear. It's usually just wind and solar. Two, transition to electric vehicles as soon as possible. California and several other states have already banning the sale of internal combustion engines by the year 2035. Um, Energy efficiency changes. The Green New Deal, which is kind of the cornerstone of all of this crap, uh, talked about retrofitting every building in the country to be more green. Uh, Number four, behavioral changes, reducing your carbon footprint footprint by traveling less, changing your dietary, whatever consumption, even having fewer kids. I know that one's a little bit more on the fringe. You don't have a whole lot of politicians talking about that, except for that crazy CNN town hall from a couple of years ago, that seven hour affair where people like Bernie Sanders did actually talk about that. AOC talks about that all the time, by the way. 
Uh, she she did talk about that once. Uh, fifth thing, and, and this is all not to mention that uh, changing the entire global economic system to incorporate environmental goals when conducting business. Any straw man's in that, or am I am I standing on solid ground saying that's generally the mainstream argument about the solutions to fighting back against climate change? I see a thumbs up from Linnea. Yeah, that's the that's the BS uh, narrative from uh, the mainstream media and everybody else. I, I I had to really resist hitting the the uh, the buzzer after every one of those statements. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, but, uh, yeah, there it is. Yeah, that one. But <laughs> so so if we can do all of these things as society, then we can stave off the worst that climate change has to offer in the next several years. Um, so this is the message to a lesser or greater extent that we are bombarded with relentlessly from all corners, from news media, movies and TV, politicians, activists, actors and actresses, even commercials and even commercials from oil companies like for crying out loud, like clearly from everywhere. They all parrot this narrative. And most recently, Pope Francis has jumped into the conversation saying, quote, the world in which we live is collapsing and that the, quote, irresponsible lifestyle connected with the Western model is to blame. So, Chris, you wrote about this story. Well, let's talk about the Pope for a little bit. What do you have to say to uh, Mr. Mr. Pope? I don't know. Uh, I'm sure he's listening to this, so be warned. Yeah, right. Okay, well, I mean, I want to do this respectfully. Obviously, the Pope is a uh, religious figure, and he's, you know, admired by many people, so this is not a personal attack against him whatsoever. However, he does have a, you know, a, a pretty bad history of uh, making these uh, climate change claims that are just not backed up by fact and evidence. He did so in 2015 when he wrote a 184-page encyclical about climate change. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's kind of funny, the timing, because that happened just before the United Nations met uh, for, to do their climate change conference in which they negotiated the Paris Accords. So, you know, I, I kind of wonder if the Pope is being used to some degree by these international organizations in order to drum up support among the 1.2 billion Catholic uh, followers who I'm not saying they hang on to his every word. However, I think if he comes out and says something like this and it's, you know, written in an encyclical or an apostolic, apostolic exhortation, as it was recently, that it, it holds weight. And I think that, you know, people, uh, ordinary uh, Catholics and uh, those, you know, in the Catholic Church probably, you know, uh, you know, read this and think, yeah, you know, he's probably right. Um, so there's that aspect of it. Um, you know, the Catholic Church obviously has a pretty poor history of, uh, you know, mingling science and religion. And this goes back hundreds of years. So they have not really been on the right side of science when it comes to things like astronomy or the Inquisition. I mean, on and on and on. Uh, and also, and, and lastly, I don't mean this as a personal attack. However, the Catholic Church has a lot bigger problem right now. And that is the fact that they are still dealing with the fallout from the child pedophile a crisis that, you know, engulfed the church for, you know, almost a century. And it was not only, uh, you know, not only occurring, but it was being, um, you know, the church was covering up for it. And, you know, on my way here this morning on the radio, they just had a commercial in, in Chicago about if you are abused by the Catholic church, please call this number because they're doing another multimillion dollar uh, lawsuit against the Catholic church here in Chicago, the uh, Chicago archdiocese. 
And it just makes me wonder, you know, why is the Catholic Church putting its time, energy and resources into an issue that it's not an expert on whatsoever when it has a lot more, you know, on its plate that it should be dealing with? Well, uh, Chris, you might not know this, but that problem uh, is is caused by climate change. So this is a way, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure I could find a study in Nature magazine that shows the correlation between those two things. So. You know, maybe you should maybe you should look into the ninety seven percent consensus before you start spouting off about stuff like that. Um, Good point. Good point. <laughs> Jim, Linnea, anything you want to add to this, or I, we could just kind of jump into some of these more specific things I've been talking about. Well, I do want to say briefly. Um, so I read Steve Malloy had a thread about this about it yesterday. Um, I, you know, it struck me. You know, I was I was taken aback by. Um, the the excerpts and everything. So I went and like I did with uh, Laudato C, I went back after taking a break from my computer for a second and I read the entirety of this document. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't think it's fair to categorize the previous document as a climate change document. Um, out of like 60,000 words, the word climate change comes up like 10 times. It's very, it's, it was really more of an ecology document. And so um, went back, read it. And yeah, the, the Pope's advisors are um, not doing a good job on this one. As I was joking with the comment section earlier, or not really joking, but saying uh, it would really uh, behoove the Pope to get um, some uh, like a 10th man policy with his advisory board on this issue, especially because the results of being heavy handed or even of pursuing um, like stopping a climate crisis by, you know, lowering our standard of living is going to have serious impacts on people. Mm-hmm. And I, I did want to point out um, this type of document is what's called a, a prudential document. As in, it's not saying that climate change is now a matter of church doctrine. Um, the church cannot make science a doctrinal statement. Um, so something like this is, especially in the scientific data that's presented, is not, as the magisterium would put it, free from deficiency. <laughs> so um, the the faithful are not bound to that part. Mm. What they are bound to are the moral principles. And the only moral principles that are really hammered on in this document are that as human beings, we have a responsibility to the environment in general. And if it turns out, which is the case, that the climate crisis is not a crisis, that it is not a problem, then those moral statements do not apply to the climate crisis. The only the only thing I'll add to that, and I think it, it's a good segue into further our, our further discussion about these issues, uh, is the fact I just want to read specifically um, point seventy two. I suppose in his in his latest missive uh, says, uh, if we consider that emissions per individual in the United States are about two times greater than those of individuals living in China, and about seven times greater than the average of the poorest countries. We can state that a broad change in the irresponsible lifestyle connected with the Western model would have a significant long-term impact. Um, I, I mean, the more I read excerpts from this, and I didn't read the whole thing, the, the you know, kind of, I try not to get angry, but the, the, the angrier I got. I mean, so 
you know, they don't call Francis the red Pope for nothing. I mean, he, he was, he's basically, he is a Marxist. I'm Catholic. And so that doesn't mean I can say whatever I want about the Pope, but he is an ideological socialist Marxist. And so he would have you believe that the problem in the world, the, what's causing this climate crisis, which doesn't exist, but if what's causing the climate crisis is the irresponsible lifestyle in places like the United States and places like Italy, for that matter, and that freedom and prosperity are destroying the climate of this planet. Um, it is demonstrably untrue. The, the, the statements of quote unquote fact he makes throughout this entire document are are not facts. They're actually false. And but, you know, if you, you have to he just takes it, these things as a given. Um, and so the solution, as always, not just from the United Nations, not just from the WEF, but from the Pope himself is to reverse capitalism or to stop capitalism and to restrict our freedom and to make us all live our lives in a much poorer, miserable way. Um, you know, there's a there are religious leaders who choose to live a a very poor and and basic sub uh, sub you know subsistence type lifestyle um but that is not the choice for most people in the world and it is the the irony here is that the richer and more free a country is the better job they do in taking care of the environment that does not mean reducing co2 emissions but the the land is cleaner the water is cleaner the air is cleaner, the more free and the more wealthy your society becomes. Uh, so as usual, the, the solutions for the so-called problem of climate change is actually going to end up making the climate worse. Oh, you know, Donnie, Donnie, just one, one quick thing. You know, while he's, you know, uh, belittling the Western model, let's not forget that the Western model has, you know, has brought the world all sorts of technological breakthroughs, all sorts of, uh, you know, medical and health developments. And if you, if you just look at, you know, uh, the longevity of people in the you know, United States versus, you know, places that don't have that quote unquote Western model, uh, the United States people live much longer. They have a much higher living standard, like James, uh, like Jim said. And just overall, you know, I, I find it, you know, uh, pretty distasteful for the Pope to say it's, you know, the, the Western model that's the cause of all this stuff when the Western model as we all know, has actually, you know, brought billions of people out of pro uh, poverty. Yeah, well, the Western model also gave us beanie babies. So how could it going to be? <laughs> uh, so let, let's let's jump into uh, the electric grid, right? So one of the main, main things that any of these kind of climate alarmists talk about is we have to switch 100% renewable energy. And by that, I mean wind and solar. Um, and do so as soon as possible. So we've talked endlessly on this podcast about how ridiculous of an idea this is. We've talked about how wind and solar are not sufficient to power a modern industrialized nation like America. We've talked about how wind and solar are not economically feasible and they're, uh, you know, it's environmentally toxic from the rare earth materials that's needed to the replacement and disposal issues that come along with this plan to the sheer amount of land needed to build all these wind turbines and these fields of solar panels, the transmission lines, all of this stuff. And to me, all of those arguments that we've talked about uh, again, again, and again, and again on this podcast, they're enough for me to reject this part of the climate narrative. But we have a couple more stories that we can add to the pile here. So the first one 
is an August 2023 report from the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, or NERC, which underscores the scope of the problems associated with overhauling the grid in this manner. Uh, reading from a, um, I think it's a Hill article that I have in the show notes, it says, very soon, NERC says, America will no longer have uh, most of the coal, gas, or even nuclear power stations that have served it well for decades. Most were located close to end users, required only short transmission lines, and provided affordable electricity almost 24-7. Short-sighted policy decisions are closing them for uh, closing them far more rapidly than uh, even unreliable wind and solar can theoretically replace them. New onshore and offshore wind and solar installations will be much farther from consumers. Uh, will thus require tens of thousands of miles of new interconnected transmission lines in addition to numerous transformers, control rooms, and other specialized technologies. The report also discusses the how much of this new tech would be uh, needed from China, opening the door to embedded gateways that make the equipment vulnerable to surveillance and hacking, and also these sprawling wind, solar transformers, and transmission line systems that will be more susceptible to damage from storms, wind, and hail, and et cetera. And just like imagine a tornado just like obliterating an entire field of solar panels, just throwing all of that stuff all over the place. So the article I have in the show notes for this report uh, even shows more issues with this plan and, and other reports that have kind of talked about that this kind of supports. So if you're interested, go check that out. You can read it in length. And I get it. At surface level, it sounds great. Oh, we could just get electricity by catching some of the wind that's blowing through the plains or, you know, collecting some of the sun rays that are just falling down to the sky. Let's just do that. You know, it sounds great. But the closer you look, the more impractical it is. And if you look really close, it really is an impossible objective. So, Lene, I'm going to start with you. Uh, what do you have to say about this issue in general and maybe specifically this new report from NERC? Well, I mean, there's really, it's not a whole lot that we haven't heard before. Um, we've seen reports in the past that there are, there is physically not enough uh, materials like copper to supply every single person in the UK with an electric vehicle. So that's fun. <laughs> um, I, I, I really do want to emphasize, though, that these, these green... I saw an exchange the other day that kind of blew my mind, and it was some people who had all those, like, climate change tags and stuff in their usernames on Twitter talking about um, how we need to stop drilling for oil and stop mining for coal because it has a impact on the landscape and that we should instead have wind and solar because mining is so bad for the landscape and we need to yeah. stop coal because of that. And I, I didn't comment on it because I'd rather not get into flame wars every day, but um, I, I was blown away by the lack of background knowledge that these people have when it comes to where these materials come from to build the things that they're talking about. Not to mention the quantity of fossil fuels that go into making those panels and those wind turbines in the first place. But there's another element that almost no one ever talks about, which is the fact that unless we are refining fuel, we are not making the byproducts that we can use to produce many of the plastics that and other um, fossil fuel byproducts, most of those are actually coming from the byproducts from refining to make gasoline. 
So if we're not making gasoline, we're not making those other products unless we set an entire industrial um, you know, facility aside specifically for that, um, which you know, as they're making it harder and harder to build new refineries, I strongly doubt that they're ever going to do. Yeah, Donnie, it, it, just just real quick. So, you know, as Lenny was talking about how uh, solar panels and giant wind turbine fields, you know, uh, are, you take up substantial amounts of land and it's not nearly as you know green as they claim it to be. Uh, Michael Moore did a great documentary a couple of years ago about the uh pulverizing of giant swaths of earth just to get those uh, rare earth elements and minerals because they are like 0.01% of the uh, like soil, like matter. So they right. used to go and just do like, you know, this full scale gigantic pulverizing of humongous, like eight thousands of acres just to get, you know, enough to make a battery or whatever. So yeah. like when I said, their lack of background knowledge is just, you know, it's, it, it's absurd. Because it's right. not, because it's not that, you know, rare earths are actually rare in the crust. They're really not. There's a lot of them. It's just that they're spread out. You don't get seams of them like you do for um, iron and copper and stuff like that. They're, they're, you have to, you basically have to be processing other materials in order to get those. A lot of the rare earths that we develop now are byproducts or like leftover slag material from um, gold mining. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and one other one other story that I want to just kind of heap onto this pile is uh, is like the kind of the issue uh, with the cost, right? Some argue that fossil fuels get a tons of subsidies, and this claim is based on extremely twisted facts. And in reality, it's renewable energies that are just awash in in subsidies. In fact, there's a recent report by the Biden administration's Department of Energy's Energy Information Administration. They published this report in August that shows that renewable energies get, quote, by far the largest slice of the pie when it comes to government subsidies. So, uh, I mean, this it's it's I mean, we've known this, but it's always nice when the other side kind of confirms our points that we've been making. But just on this point of the energy grid, Jim, uh, you know, transitioning to 100 percent renewable energy. We talk about all of these things, everything that, uh, you know, I brought up at the beginning, everything that Chris and Linnea just said, all of these stories that I just talked about. Like, what is it going to take if we're not there already? What is it going to take? to wake people up from this dream that this is even possible, let alone economically and environmentally feasible. Yeah. I mean, we talk about this on this podcast a lot and it's talked about almost every single episode of climate change Roundtable, which you can watch Fridays at uh, 1 PM Eastern noon central time on the Heartland Institute's main channel on YouTube and also on rumble. But yeah, we're always, I'm on, and I know Linnea feels the same way. It's like, you see story after story, about uh, how so-called green energy is a fraud that, uh, you know, I would have thought years ago now, it's almost, this is in the innocent times of the Obama administration, when we were pouring hundreds of millions of dollars of taxpayer money into a company called Solyndra, and that uh, when that went belly up and the CEOs got uh, got to fill their pockets and, uh, and walk away while the uh, American taxpayer um, had to foot the bill, I would have thought, you know, that might wake some people up that this whole thing is a fraud and a scam. Uh, that didn't work. Um, when you see uh, Germany um, supposedly going to um, completely revolutionize and redo their entire energy grid in the green way. So we're going to have uh, lots of wind. We're going to have lots of solar. And very quickly, everybody's uh, energy bills went through the roof. 
um, they started worrying about having enough uh, energy capacity in order to power up one of the most important economic engines of Europe. That didn't really seem to phase anybody. And I think it was just a couple of months ago that um, the leaders of industry in Germany said, we have to close these factories down and move elsewhere because we don't think we're going to, we know we're not going to have enough power to actually run our factories if this stupid green energy madness continues. That apparently hasn't woken anybody up. Um, you see, uh, I know Sterling Burnett is watching the show here in the chat. He lives in Texas. We had that uh, the Texas power disaster that happened in February, I think two Februarys ago. And uh, that didn't really wake anybody up. It's no, it's fine. We can continue moving forward like this. You can show pictures of children uh, in the Congo digging up cobalt and other rare earth minerals um, in absolutely filthy and dangerous and horrible conditions. And you can show those pictures. You can do an, There was a whole documentary about that. There was a book written about that. Nobody seems to care. And so I, I you know, I'm the, probably the most cynical person on this podcast. Um, I think after this parade of proof, that green energy not only can't work, it's 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 created in immoral ways. And if this hasn't woken people up, I can't imagine anything can wake people up. Maybe it will take um, uh, them not having power at all in their in their homes for weeks on end because the entire the stability of the entire national grid has been so compromised that we can't even keep this country running anymore. If it comes to that, it's way too late. As it is right now, it's already way too late. But, you know, I, I keep waiting for that that eureka moment when people realize this is all a scam and cannot work. It cannot work. As Linnea said, there isn't enough copper in the world just to give everybody in the United Kingdom an electric car, let alone everybody in the world. And then you come to realize, you know what? They know that. And that's the point. They don't want mm -hmm. us to have um, energy independence. They don't want us to have personal transportation. They don't want us to have affordable energy prices. They don't want us to be able to heat our homes and to live our lives. And even the Pope says we have to change the way we live our lives because the people who want to control us think that if you have too much freedom and energy is the is the engine of freedom, uh, that that's a problem. So they're doing all they can to to stop freedom at its source, which is energy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Linnea, the um, I mean, th this th this is the question of the podcast. It's just like, what is it going to take? And, and last week on Climate Change Roundtable, again, Fridays at noon Central Time, you can join the show at Heartland's uh, YouTube channel. Um, you Last week, you had Steve Gorham on talking about his new book, which is called Green Breakdown, I believe. And in it, at one part of the, the episode, he talked about how he thinks – that people will finally understand this at some point. He's like, maybe it'll be 10 years from now. Maybe it'll be 20 years from now. What went through your head when he said that? Were you saying like, oh yeah, I think that will happen on that timetable, maybe shorter, maybe longer, or no, that's never going to happen. What do you think? I think unfortunately, cause we, we kind of, we rather like having a, you know, dramatic reveal of the truth or whatever. And um, where everyone all of a sudden wakes up, uh, but I really don't think that that's normally how things work. I think it's normally a really slow slog. Um, and I, uh, one, I think you guys are partially right when you say that it's going to take people feeling uh, personal pain in their own lives in order to realize that these ideas are probably not so good. Um, some of the people that I've talked to in the past who used to be on board with the green stuff all of a sudden became skeptical, not because they heard it in the news or something, something that perked up their ears, because most people aren't paying that much attention, to be honest. You know, no one's as into this topic as we are. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we really, it really is kind of a niche um, 
political position to have, even on the right. So um, no one knows all of the information, which is why it's such a good thing that Heartland goes out and tries to disseminate some of these facts, uh, but they're not going to report that kind of stuff on CNN. What people do find out, and in my experience is what happens, is um, they get a wind development project or something that starts going up, or they their electricity bills start going up, and then all of a sudden they say, well, hang on a second. You know, I'm seeing dead birds all over the place, or I'm getting headaches because of the flicker or whatever it happens to be. There's something really weird going on here, and we're not getting the full story. And so they'll start investigating um, you know, they'll go to like John Droz's website um, about stopping wind development or some of the other programs that are out there to help people figure out how to fight them in their neighborhood. And they'll they'll find that um, there are other people out there who have been talking about how these projects are not as beneficial as they are purported to be. And then they'll start kind of snowballing and learning all the rest of the stuff. But usually it takes something in their personal life that brings them to this perspective. And if they never get, you know, badly hit by it, or, you know, the opposite can happen, they can start going worse to the other side, you know, if they get hit by a hurricane or something, and then all they're seeing on TV is that this is because of climate change. Well, that's going to influence the way that people think. So the, I, I'll beat the drum on this forever. The media is our main hurdle on this issue. Um, I really think so. I think that if you were to turn, or at least get some skepticism in the mainstream media, the kind of stuff that people don't have to go out of their way to find, uh, that would be a major turning point for us. Yeah. Donnie, you know, I know that you mentioned earlier that you don't want to talk about like, you know, the, the problem of climate change, but all these solutions are predicated on climate change being an existential crisis. So if we were to, you know, to poke holes in that narrative as we, you know, do every day here, I think that that would also help people understand that, wait a second, these these uh, programs and these, you know, green energy, uh, you know, subsidies are actually not even necessary in the first place. So I think that that, that is like a core part of this whole you know argument. I know, but I, I just wonder, <clears throat> like, you know, even if even if we were to allow them, you know, the, the that problem or something like that and just have their solutions align with reality, like anything. You know, like if they just went full yeah. bore into nuclear or something like that, like something that would actually be like a feasible solution to the quote unquote problem, then like I can sleep at night. But just this like rigid adherence to some fantasy blows my mind. And that's what is, is causing me to have uh, um, wanting to but, dedicate. Well, I think you got to follow the money. And like you said earlier, you know, in order for these wind turbine fields and the uh, solar panel arrays to be connected to the grid. It's going to be a whole bunch of new transmission lines and that costs lots of money. And that's, you know, lots of uh, money for these uh, energy companies that they want. And a lot of it, you know, comes from the federal and state governments. So it really, I think it just boils down to follow the money. Yeah, well, just, okay. Before you move on to the next one, I mean, I mean, the bottom line is that we are, we are fighting against uh, at least two generations of, of people who have been completely indoctrinated into a climate cult. They they do not they cannot think about these <clears throat> things. You can present them all the facts you want and it will not penetrate because they are not 
dealing in a logical world. They're dealing in a fantasy right. world and they're mm -hmm. dealing and right. you're dealing with people who are so fanatical that they are religious in their uh, in their adherence to this. Now, that's the that that's those are the the zealots. But even just so ordinary people are just they're They've been in their entire life awash in this stuff. They've been they've been 50 feet deep under an ocean of propaganda. And so it's very hard. We, we tried. I think we do a really good job. But it's going to take a lot of time. As somebody, um, one of our viewers here on the on the podcast had noted that, um, you know, the madness of crowds, like, you know, a, a, you can get yeah. a mob uh, really worked up and brainwashed. And that happens relatively quickly and on a broad scale. But you, you only cure them of this one by one by one. And it takes more time. And that's what we're working Jim, on. Right Jim, brings up, Jim brings up a really good point because when I was in uh, middle school, Al Gore's uh, you know, movie came out and we watched, we were forced to watch it. And then I think we had to do like a report on like how we could do that. And I remember like, you know, went home later that day. And I think I was talking to my dad about climate change. And he was like, actually, you know, that that's not really true. And then he kind of, you know, like opened my eyes. But then I just think all these students, millions and millions of students for the past, you know, couple of decades have been brainwashed into this indoctrination factory. And I saw it when I was teaching at a you know high school in South Carolina. The earth science department was all about climate change. That, that that's that was you know all they all they talked about and that's all they did. Yep. Yeah. Well, and that was actually my little like waking up moment was when I was in middle school. We watched Inconvenient Truth. We watched some other thing. Talked about Silent Spring. Did all that stuff. I had two teachers for all of my classes in eighth grade, and they were obsessed. Every single class that I took, they tied to climate change. Mm -hmm. um, we like sold reusable bags, all that stuff. Um, but I was a little nerd. And I read those zoo books religiously. <laughs> and one day my teacher said that um, polar bears are dying when the ice is melting because they're not good swimmers. And that just flicked a switch in my brain. I was like, wait a second. Yes, they are. They're the best <laughs> swimmers. <laughs> and I didn't believe a thing she told me <laughs> after that. Right. And it just, um, so Your expert it's, card it's, it's just got revoked. Like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's stuff like that, that gets to people. But I will say, well, I don't think that people losing power is going to be enough because so far when people lose power, they blame it on climate change. So I think that it needs to be um, worse than that, unfortunately. My, my heart really goes out to the people that are true believers in the climate crisis, but also realize that this whole idea, like the solutions that are being proposed by everyone uh, on that side, are, aren't solutions. They're not real. It's like, you know, like, uh, I don't know where Michael Schellenberger currently stands on the idea of a climate crisis, but I know that's how he kind of got into this side of the debate is like realizing that the solutions weren't, weren't real solutions or Chris, you already mentioned, uh, Michael Moore with that planet of the humans documentary or the guy that, uh, kind of directed it or narrated it. I forget, uh, Jeff mm -hmm. Gibbs, like they both, those two, for sure, true believers realize that wind and solar are a corporate scam. Um, and it's just like, basically, it's like you're telling me that, uh, you know, a comet is coming and you don't have an actual practical solution like sending Bruce Willis up there to blow it up or anything like that. Your solution is magic. I'm supposed to sleep at night knowing that magic is the solution. Like I, my heart really goes out to those true believers. But I want to get back to this kind of this main point. But I want to bring up another facet of this whole kind of climate narrative and the solutions around it. And that's in regards to transportation. So 
transitioning the American fleet of cars to EVs, electric vehicles. So again, this is a topic that we've discussed on multiple, multiple occasions on this podcast. We've talked about the limited range of electric vehicles, how expensive they are, how government subsidies are basically only benefiting upper class people when it comes to buying these cars. We've talked about the how expensive it is to replacing the batteries and the increased likelihood of them catching on fire. We've talked about how they are not equipped to withstand the cold weather. And like wind and solar, they require massive amounts of rare earth materials, uh, which we are increasingly reliant on China for. And again, these issues that we've covered before on this podcast is enough for me not to want to get one. But again, uh, we have a bunch more stories to heap onto this pile. So the first one that I want to discuss is out of Kansas. I saw one commenter, I think maybe it was Bob, mentioned this in the comments uh, just a few minutes ago. But it's a story out of Kansas where a Japanese technology company has set up a large electric vehicle battery plant. And apparently this plant uses so much energy to produce electric vehicle batteries that the state's energy company is going to keep a a coal plant, which was slated to close, open. So that's right. In order to build more batteries for our nice, clean electric vehicles, we're going to have to continue to burn a whole lot more coal. And uh, not only that, but the Japanese firm also stands to garner billions of dollars in federal subsidies. So, Jim, I mean, this would be comical if it weren't so indicative of how ridiculous the system we've built around the so-called green industry. What do you think about this particular story? Yeah, well, that's uh, that story. I think there's. I saw a reference to the Cowboy State Daily, which of course is Wyoming. Which of course, uh, Linnea went to the University of Wyoming, so she has a connection there. And seems to be a lot of common sense and smart people uh, that come in and out of Wyoming. We should probably be recruiting from there to handle our all of our sensitive government activities. <laughs> yeah, I like <laughs> I like the journalist, one of the journalists who work at this paper. He's really cool. Yeah, oh. but the, and not but, just uh, because he quotes me all the time. He does quote you all the time because he's very. Smart. <laughs> I, I feel uh, bad for throwing shade at. Wyoming last uh, I literally just picked a state <laughs> yeah. to make fun of last week and uh now I, I apologize Wyoming Please well it's okay because Liz because Liz Cheney was you know yeah it's true Liz Liz Cheney is a representative there so you can make fun I of take them for back that. my apology go ahead Jim yeah no just it's just uh I mean I've said it several times it's like one of the ways I try to communicate this to mm. people who believe in green energy and that green energy is the future I say that green energy can't generate enough energy to create itself in other words, the, the, you would need uh, somebody should calculate how many wind turbines you would need and where they would have to be placed and how many transmission lines would have to be brought in to to feed a factory that makes nothing but wind turbines. In other words, it's not the, the energy is so unreliable and and not dense enough that it that green energy literally can't generate enough energy to make more green energy. Um, fossil fuels can not only um, you can not only use the power from a coal plant to build other coal plants easily you can just keep multiplying them not to mention a nuclear plant's ability to create other nuclear plants if you were just to use that that source of energy uh you know you that i think that's one way i've tried to explain to people that that and this story about they're needing to build a brand new coal plant in kansas to to in order to power a factory that will make electric batteries i mean or uh, batteries for electric vehicles i mean it's awesome that is like the example of what i've been trying to tell people for so long and it made me laugh so much yeah no it's absurd and there's one other story and then i'll get a comment from linnea and chris that i want to bring up um and and this is uh this i think is 
might be even a better story of just the absurdity of all of this stuff. So in in 2023, the Biden administration poured $1.7 billion into a federal transit administration's grant program to encourage low and no emission vehicles as a part of Biden's infrastructure plan. So Jackson, Wyoming, Wyoming being brought up again, received nearly a million dollars under this grant to purchase a fleet of electric city buses. They bought them from a firm called Proterra, um, one of the nation's largest electric bus manufacturers. Well, Proterra went under due to, quote, various market and macroeconomic headwinds. And the eight buses that Jackson, Wyoming bought Well, they're in need of repair, and the only company apparently capable of servicing these vehicles is Proterra, which I said went out of business. So the buses are just basically sitting in some city garage somewhere, just rotting away. And you just have to, like, seriously think about, like, the whole scope of this story to understand its level of absurdity. So the state and federal governments take tax money from you. Give it to a firm like Proterra in forms of grants and subsidies and tax breaks to make electric vehicle, you know, EV buses or whatever. Then the federal government takes more tax money and gives it to local governments so that they can buy the products from companies like Proterra, right? So the money is extracted from the economy run through a massive complex bureaucracy so that there is an artificial customer and an artificial supplier. The situation is so far from a free market, it's unbelievable. And then everything is completely wasted because the company can't even stay in business. So this has got to be one of the most extreme examples of government waste inefficiency, cronyism, or anything like that you can come up with. And the justification for all of those levels of absurdity is this idea of, well, we're going to fight back against climate change by doing this. It is so unbelievable to me that this is just like applauded, you know, by everyone on the left because now we're Jackson, Wyoming is fighting against climate change. It's unbelievable to me. So, Chris, I'm going to let you take a, a kind of a swing at this whole topic of electric vehicles and maybe that story specifically. I think you hit the nail on the head that this is cronyism at its finest. Uh, you know, the, the federal government... Uh, you know, puts out subsidies for products that people don't want to buy. People don't want to buy those products because they are not ready for prime time yet. And in a place like Wyoming, I'm not talking about the buses. I'm talking about EV cars here. There aren't enough charging stations, you know, in, in these very rural counties in like the heartland of America, there just aren't enough charging stations for people to, you know, buy these cars and charge them yet. Um, and And people just don't want them. So I, this is just, you know, like, like Jim said, with Solyndra, you know, the, the examples are, you know, numerous where the federal government says we want this outcome. Therefore we take money from you taxpayers to try to make that outcome happen. And even, even with that, you know, happening, the outcome still doesn't happen because the people just don't want it. So Donnie, like you said, it would be so much better, so much better for our overall economy, for people's wallets, just for everything. If the federal government and state governments for that matter just said, you know what, we're just going to allow you to choose what kind of car you want to drive. And I would take that to the next level and say, we also are going to allow you to choose what kind of light bulb you want to put in your house and just everything. If they would just let us make decisions, because Donnie, you know, I talk a lot about this. People in the government, bureaucrats or, you know, people on a on a you know five year plan. So they never have enough enough knowledge mm-hmm. in order for you know them to make these you know grand uh, decisions that are going to impact 
people in vastly different circumstances. So someone in New York City, yeah, they might like an EV because they don't maybe drive very much. Or maybe they, you know, uh, you know, have uh, charging stations, you know, at their disposal. But it's not going to work, you know, in right. a country that is as large as the United States and as different as the United States. One size solutions never work. We've seen that for the course of the, the you know, over the past century in totalitarian dictatorships. It never works. However, the federal government just keeps wanting to go back to that well. And it's really for it's, it's for money and power. Yeah. And Jim, I just kind of want to circle back to that. The main question of the of the podcast, which is what like what's it going to take? Like, again, you take one of these true believers climate change is going to destroy us all. And okay, well, what's the solution? What's the solution? Oh, well, we're going to take tax money. We're going to make up this company that's going to sell electric buses. And then we're going to pay people to buy those buses. And then they're all just going to rot and rot away in a, in a garage because that company can't possibly actually stay financially feasible. Like, that's yeah, just ridiculous. That person would just be like, is this a joke? Or like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, I feel like they would have to wake them up, but it's not. It's so not... what's it going to take, Jim? Seriously. Well, you know, I think it's going to take even more electric vehicles just spontaneously combusting uh, uh, in people's homes. I mean, we've already seen, uh, Andy could probably find in, tw- in 10 seconds, video of uh, buses, that uh, electric buses that catch on fire. Uh, and, and I know Linnea has talked about this um, on a few occasions on the Climate Change Roundtable show, that a, a an electrical ve- an electric vehicle fire when that battery catches fire is extremely hard to to put out <laughs> and it's and it's very very dangerous there you go hey there's this video on there the start of an electric uh, bus vehicle fire that is horrifying that is terrible if you're inside that bus when that happens you are dead right now it's over you're finished you are a dead person and it's like a thermite fountain where's your home when you need him huh that is crazy and so you know, the yeah, you know, I'm glad the incident caused no injuries, it says. Yeah, but look at everybody get the hell out of the way. Oh, my it's, God. oh look, and more things catch fire. Carbon but, footprint of that. Jeez. I know, right. What's the carbon <laughs> footprint of that? Look, oh my god, look at all that black smoke going up in the air. That's terrible. That's actual pollution, guys. Carbon dioxide is not pollution. That is actually pollution. But you know, when I see this stuff, I think if they weren't mandating that we get into electric vehicles, these things would be banned. There is no way that they would allow people to have vehicles that will spontaneously combust and you didn't do anything wrong and kill you and your whole family (laughs) in one of the hottest fires that can most spontaneously erupt. It would be banned. They would not allow these things on the market. They are so dangerous. And in fact, I saw a story the other day about how people who are buying electric vehicles are are finding out that the insurance rates on those things are through the roof. Mm -hmm. Why? That's why, because they can just catch fire spontaneously like that. If the environmental left was actually serious about not controlling our lives and making our lives worse, but actually doing, I should say, ecological good to the planet, we would be having discussions about encouraging people to get into hybrid vehicles because that reduces your carbon footprint quite a lot when you use battery power instead of using your internal combustion engine all the time. But they don't want to do that. No, that's that's old technology. That doesn't work. It would actually do a lot. If your goal is to reduce emissions, that would go a long way to doing it because it's obviously a hybrid solution. If you were serious about reducing uh, carbon dioxide emissions and the generation of electricity in this country, you'd be saying, let's go nuclear all across the country and do that first and then bring all of these coal and gas uh, plants back. They don't want to do that either. So it makes you think their their agenda is not actually saving the environment, but making your life crap. And, and reducing the standard of living and bringing the United States and the whole West to heel 
to a to a globalist Marxist agenda in which we're all poorer and thus easier to control. I'm sorry that that's my conclusion. Talk me out of it. I can't think of another way to get there or a, a, another reason why all of the, all reasonable solutions are not being are not being pursued and only solutions that are super expensive, a complete fraud, have cars catching on fire spontaneously everywhere. Um, convince yeah, me that I'm wrong because that's all I see is is what the reality is is out there. Well, what, what's funny about this case in particular about the electric vehicles is that like individually people are rejecting this, right? I mean, like electric vehicle, I think there was like a Bill Maher clip that I'd seen recently where he was talking about like, like not only are electric cars like not selling more than normal cars, it's like, like, or no, what did he say? He said like the most popular car in America was an electric car. It wasn't even a car. It was a truck. <laughs> it's like Americans are so far from like accepting this as like an, a real alternative to their internal combustion engine. Like we were so far from that reality. And Jim, you shared another story with me uh, on Slack a couple of days ago about how General Motors only sold 18 electric vehicles in the entire third quarter of this uh, of this past year. 18. And well, you no, had to reassure me. 18 was, of, a, of a specific yeah. model of truck. 18 oh, trucks. Right. Okay. 18 Colorado. of these trucks. Right, right. And you're like, and I didn't leave a zero off or a couple of zeros off. No, it was just 18, <laughs> right? So it's like, yeah, I mean, people are rejecting this in an individual basis, yet they're still electing people that are passing policies that enforce this type of stuff on the population at large. So it's like at an individual basis, I think people are awake to this not really being a solution. And the people that are buying electric vehicles are just like, you know, it's like a novelty thing to virtue signal or whatever, for the most part. Generally, people aren't doing it to save the planet. But they're still doing this end around thing where they're voting for the politicians that are enacting these policies that force this on us or that throw billions of dollars in subsidies to the uh, to the companies that are involved in this. So. Like they still have to wake up from that part. Yeah, but that's because people vote on their emotions, not on their, you know, not on logic and, and reason and, and ration. And unfortunately, that's been happening a lot more since you know who uh, came to the presidency in 2016. Yeah, yeah. So, Lene, I'm just going to throw this this the the grand question of this episode to you one more time before we close out the show. But it's just what is it going to take? Seriously, what is it going to take? We could just pump out article after article and video after video and study after study that just proves these points. But what's it going to take? Like, seriously, what's it going to take to wake people up? Um, the whole weight of this world is on you right now. In this okay, answer, cool. So. Uh, <laughs> no well, pressure. the whole weight of the world is on me. And I think that step one is to... Uh, just obliterate the mainstream media. <laughs> I really, I really think that if the mainstream, or at least, or at least take over, you know, um, take them from the inside or something, and it's going to take a while. But I really think that if, if on people's television all day long when they're at um, airports, because apparently that's the only people who are watching CNN, mm -hmm. um, you know, if you're at the airport, if you're at the bus stop, whatever, if you're somewhere. Anywhere that you are, and there's some kind of mainstream news, the Weather Channel, if you're playing the Weather Channel, and the Weather Channel is reciting a bunch of this hurricane was made 14% more powerful by climate change, according to this all attribution study. Um, if you're getting that all day, and you're not someone who is interested in this stuff, then you're just going to believe it. And, and I don't think that you can be blamed 
necessarily because not everyone is an expert on everything. Most of us have a few issues that we just kind of take the experts, so to speak, for granted. And um, we just believe them, uh, which I we compartmentalize. And which I think is a mistake, but I think it's something that everyone does to one extent or the other. But if we can, if we can take over some of those institutions, I think it's going to be really important. Um, but more than that, I think that pain, unfortunately, is going to be one of the main wake up calls. When people are seeing, um, you know, their friend who owned a farm for years, get his farm taken from him by the government or whatever, um, for green related stuff, or if they are um, trying to force more people to eat those abominations, we're starting to get people who are usually kind of the like, crystal tarot card reader types mm -hmm. to turn on the green people because of some of this like mass produced fake meat stuff because right, they realize right. that it's not good for you and that's their niche so they're like yeah. really hyped up about the wef pushing fake meat um so i i, I think it's going to be individuals are going to slowly over time get sick of this stuff um they already rank at the lowest among all of the issues that they face uh, consistently worldwide. <laughs> if you give someone a poll and you and you poll every person in the world and you ask them to rank economy, um, you know, uh, grocery social store, issues. food prices, social issues, all of that stuff, they are all going to rank higher than climate change every single time. Um it's only when you ask someone, is climate change really important? That's when they'll say, yeah, definitely, because they hear it 600 times a day. Right. Lene, I, I have a, just a slightly different take on that. I think it boils down to the plain uh, pain, pleasure principle. And humans tend to change their behaviors when the pain is more than the pleasure. And I'm not talking about them seeking pleasure from uh, driving EVs or from, uh, you know, buying solar pa uh, panels for their homes. But right now, I think that the, the pleasure exists in that they are not ostracized if they fall in line with that. And until there's like a societal and a cultural shift in which most people say, wait a second, that's garbage. What are you like? What are you talking about? Then they're going to say, Oh yeah. And it would actually benefit, it would behoove them to say, yeah, you're right. That is garbage. And I'm not going to like, you know, succumb to that kind of, you know, garbage thinking. But right now it's just that, you know, like you said, the media, the schools, Hollywood, all these, you know, very uh, significant cultural institutions have such sway over people that a lot of my friends, it's like, they just buy the end of the narrative because I think that they're afraid to, you know, mm -hmm. to, to be brave enough to actually like question or counter it. So mm -hmm. once you get a, a majority of the population saying, wait a second, and Donnie, this goes back to our original thing of whether people actually believe climate change necessitates this, you know, giant, uh, you know, shift in their lives. Once the 50% or 50.1% of the people say, wait a second, no, it doesn't. Then I think we're going to see a change. However, we have not reached that point yet. And it's, I hate to be pessimistic, but when you look at children in particular, they are very, very, you know, uh, ardent that climate change is an existential crisis and they don't even want to have children and blah, 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 blah. So we mm -hmm. definitely need to reach those young minds and and actually, you know, ingrain them with the truth. In fact, yeah, yeah, it's 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 I think it's going to increasingly become this thing for like the future generations that like all of your problems that you're experiencing in your life are going to be attributable to climate change. And in reality, it's the it's like the policies that are being like pushed be 
and using just uh, climate change as a justification that's really the problem of all uh, the source of all of these people's problems. So maybe that's the strategy to kind of get through to that next generation. No, no, it's not climate change. It's not the the idea that a stronger hurricane is causing you to not be able to find a job. It's all of these uh, solutions that are being thrown around using climate change as a justification. So-called solutions to non-existent problems. Uh, Jim, any final words on any of these issues that we've talked about? No, I just uh, would encourage all of our regular uh, viewers on the YouTube channel to remember to bring a friend next time. Uh, maybe we'll have some sort of contest. Uh, you can get a free gift, some free Heartland swag or something. If uh, nice. Maybe we'll make a contest into that. But uh, thanks, everyone, for being here and for another great show. Yeah, and one other last thing. Sterling in the chat made a reference to Atlas Shrugged, uh, which just by some weird coincidence... I have just started revisiting just like uh, several days ago. There, That's sitting right there. I'm on chapter like four or five of that. Donnie, uh, you're on page one. Right just now. kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, it, it is mind-blowing to me how relevant that book is to what's going on today. Um, minus the climate change as like the justification. The justification for all the terrible policies that are being pursued by all of the kind of antagonistic characters in that is all just kind of your classic collectivist thinking and everything, but it's still so relevant to what's going on today. There was sections during the first like 50 pages of the book um, that was just like, they, they must be talking about ESG here. Like, this is the same exact ESG rhetoric that I'm hearing today, but she's writing about it in a book that was published in 1956 or something like that, 1957. These are time, timeless issues that, that you know, span generations. It's, the yeah. mi- it's, you know, the micromanagers versus the freedom lovers. Right. Uh, and to close off the show, we just got a super chat. From one of our most loyal listeners here, Christine, saying, thanks for raising these topics. Awesome show. Thank you, Christine, for supporting the show like that. It is greatly appreciated. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to do it for this episode of the In the Tank podcast. Join us every week for a new episode. Please subscribe, write a review for us on iTunes if you're an audio-only listener. And if you're an audio-only listener listening to the show on a Friday or later, you can join us a day earlier where we are live streaming this on YouTube and Twitter and Rumble and Facebook. And you can join the conversation by throwing your comments and questions in the chat there. Maybe we'll show your comments on the screen. Maybe we'll address your questions on the fly. Also, you can follow us on Twitter if you would like at In The Tank Pod, or you can send us your comments, suggestions, and questions to the show by emailing us at In The Tank Podcast at gmail.com. Jim Lakely, where can the fine people find you? At Jay Lakely on Twitter, at Heartland Inst on Twitter, and always visit heartland.org. Chris Talgo, what do you have to pitch today? stoppingsocialism.com heartland.org that's fantastic and Linnea for people to follow your work where can they go Um, well check us out on Friday for the live stream um, climate change roundtable that's at uh, 1 o'clock eastern so noon central Um, and also at climaterealism.com Sterling Burnett and I wrote a op-ed on the uh, renewable energy subsidies thing and I highly recommend everyone go read that article because we put a lot of work into it and it really makes it very clear that renewables are not uh, being outpaced by fossil fuels when it comes to getting subsidies. So this arms you with some uh, facts and figures that you can spam at people and win win internet arguments with, (laughs) which everyone loves. Intellectual (laughs) ammunition, you might call it. (laughs) Right. All right. Thank you all for tuning in. We will talk to you next week.
He's a lion dog-faced pony soldier.